do you suppose it was like that night in Bethlehem? Now, I don't actually know whether it was nighttime when Jesus was born. We don't, we don't know these things. Although, uh, if you've had any children, it seems like it's always the middle of the night, doesn't it? It's always the most inconvenient time, for sure. That song about this silent night in Bethlehem really isn't trying to convince us of the factual timing of Jesus' birth as the silent stars go by, or that it was an, uh, an unusually calm or supernaturally calm night in Bethlehem. We don't know that. But what we do know is that it was like any other time in Bethlehem. If it happened at night, the people were sleeping like they usually would be sleeping. If it happened during the daytime, then people were working as they would normally be working. And they had no idea what was going on with that young couple who had a baby and had to lay that baby in a cow feeder because they didn't have any place else to be. They had no idea that born among them was the everlasting light, the light of life. In the middle of their everyday routine, their normal, God stepped in. And nothing was ever normal again. One thing about this strange year of 2020 and the pandemic that we've been dealing with, it's definitely shaken us out of normal, hasn't it? One of the good things about it is I think it's caused us to have to rethink some things about church, to rethink what it means to be the church, to gather. How do you gather when you can't gather? How do you balance love of neighbor, knowing that there is a virus out there, with a lack of fear because you walk by faith. We've had to rethink a lot of these things. i got to tell you, I think that's a good thing. I think the idea of stretching ourselves is a pretty good picture of what we see over and over and over and over again in God's revealed word. Comfortable is very often the enemy of God's will for us. When Abram, you might know him better as Abraham, was in his normal, in his comfortable routine, just doing what he always did in the land of the Chaldeans, God called him out. He said, Abram, I'm going to call you to go someplace. Where do you want me to go, Lord? I'm not going to tell you. I just, I'm calling you to go. You pack up, leave home, leave familiar, leave normal behind. And if Abram had stayed where it was comfortable, there would be no Israel. And if there were no Israel, there would be no Jesus. 
God had a plan. And the plan, very often, was to rip his people out of their comfort zone so that he could take them to the place that they needed to be, that he called them to be. The children of Israel, as much as they complained in Egypt when they were slaves, they were used to it. It was a comfortable misery. They hated it enough to complain, but they were comfortable enough with it that when God took them to the promised land and delivered them from slavery, when it got a little bit tough, a little bit hot, got a little bit tired of eating manna all the time, they said, oh, why couldn't we just go back to Egypt? We had it so good there as slaves. At least we had leeks and onions. At least we had tasty food. You just brought us out here to have us die in the desert? God has plans that are bigger than ours. God's plans for us are good. In fact, they are grand, even, if you will, glorious. And they are very seldom what we would choose. Today, as we talk about this idea of killing normal, as we wrap up our Killing Christmas series, I want us to focus in on this core reality. The real value of Christmas is in recognizing Jesus Christ as the center of everything. The real value of Christmas is in recognizing Jesus Christ as the center of everything. Not just the center of a season, not just something we do talk about at church. Jesus is everything. As we go through the holiday season, we give a lot of lip service to that. But then the holiday passes. We do the same thing at Easter. We do the same thing. Good Friday comes and we come to a Good Friday service and we contemplate the death of Christ on our behalf and very often we'll, we'll just be awed and humbled and tears will often flow. And then... We go back to normal, and we put that aside, and we go on with our lives. And then, three days later, we have this Sunday celebration, this resurrection celebration, and we come to church, and we sing triumphant songs of victory, and it's great. And then we go back to normal, and we set all that transcendent glory aside, because we have things to do. We have work. We have sports, we have school, we have relationships, things to do. We do a lot like what Jesus encountered when Martha and Mary were posting him. You don't have to look it up, you'll remember the story. Jesus shows up, and of course it's an exciting time. The rabbi is here, the Messiah. They hadn't fully grasped that yet, but they, they grasped enough of it. They knew he was the great teacher. And when Jesus showed up, Martha did what was normal. She did what she should do as a hostess, make sure everything is ready. She's doing all this work. Jesus doesn't condemn her for that. Let's not, not ever be confused. He doesn't condemn her for that. But as she pursued normal, she missed the glorious. She missed what was best. He said, Mary has chosen the better part. Mary, Mary sat at his feet, said, you know what? The rest of this doesn't matter. 
Normal has no place when the king is present. We need to get a little bit more of that. That doesn't mean don't do the things that need to be done. Go to work. Work hard. That's the reason for the Protestant work ethic even originating was the whole idea that work is sacred. It's not something we do that, that keeps us from God's work. It is part of God's work, that it's always God's work. And everything we do at all times is God working through us when we give him all of our lives. If you walk away with nothing else today, I hope you'll walk away with a whole life perspective of what it means to be a Christ follower. Every moment, every day, 24-7, 365, you get an extra one in a leap year. Every part of every moment, His. Christmas is an opportunity for us to recognize it. That's the real value in it. But if it stops there, then we've thrown away that precious thing. We've thrown away that which is most valuable. Today, we looked at Matthew chapter 2. I would invite you to look at it again. We, we looked at these magi. As you see this, I'll just to let you in on a little, little inside truth, I forgot to put the blanks in the program for you. So in case you thought that was a plan, it wasn't. I'm just sometimes a, a little bit excited to get things going, and so I, I didn't uh, put the, the stuff in there. So you get a pass on your homework to this extent. You don't have to fill in blanks. So for those of you who rely on that to focus and pay attention and stay awake, I'll try to shout loud and hit stuff every once in a while just to keep you on, on track. As we look at, at Matthew chapter 2, this familiar story of what happens is not part, even though it's in a lot of your, your crushes, your nativity scenes, virtually all of them, you're going to see the, the three wise men. And there are some, some strange things that we've done with the story because it's what we do. A combination of tradition and mythology blending in, conflating with actual history. And so we, this is all we know about this story. It's all we know about these magi. And it often gets translated as the, uh, uh, as the older translations like the King James would say, the wise men. Now, that's a reasonable translation. That, that, that could work. We might say the kings, we three kings of Orient of, from the east are bearing gifts that we traverse, we carry afar. It doesn't say anything about three kings here. We don't know how many magi there are. We know it's plural. We stick three in there because there are three gifts mentioned. So people think, oh yeah, three gifts, three magi, three wise men, three kings. Okay. And they didn't come to the stable. In fact, there's no mention of an actual stable, just a manger. So we, we think, okay, it makes sense. A feeder, there should be maybe a stable to keep them. We don't know these things. We come up with them. Follow the word. Now, none of that really changes the, the focus of the story, but it's important for us to recognize that we have to be people of the book. If we start to skew the standard where we get to decide what is truth, then there is no truth. We throw away the measuring stick. 
Stick to the book. I'm not going to stop singing the songs. And we still have the three kings and camels in our nativity scene. Deal with it. So as we're moving through the story, here's, here's what we want to catch. All right? This happens after the baby is born. Okay? And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That does not mean they came to Bethlehem. In fact, uh, as they are doing this, we think that they did because they flee and Herod comes to Bethlehem. So it makes sense. We can extrapolate from the facts that are there the gaps that we don't have. So it doesn't say they come to Bethlehem, but they come because Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Herod, in the story just following this, will send soldiers to kill babies in Bethlehem. So you think the Magi came to Bethlehem? Yes or no? Yeah, seems logical. That, it's a good way to, to read the context here and put that together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Herod is the king under, he's a vassal king under Roman rule, Magi, which is a kind of a mysterious word, that's why modern translations go back to just calling it Magi, because we don't really know. Magi from the east, where? Some have said as far as China, most likely, probably Persia. We just know it's east of there. They came from the east to Jerusalem. They didn't come to Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem, worked their way down, and asked, where is the one who's, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They came because they had understood some kind of prophecy about a king of the Jews, a king of Jerusalem. Now, was this the Hebrew scriptures? We're not really told. That fits. They, they may have had those scriptures. If they're from Persia, then those scriptures would have likely have been there because that's uh, where, where Jews were in exile. Babylon. Or they had some other prophecies from, from outside, these Gentile uh, folks who are in some form of astrology that they're studying the stars and gaining meaning from the stars. In any case, we know that this star to them represented a prophecy of a king who would be born as the king of the Jews. That's all the detail that we're given here about what their, their thing is. Even if they're drawing this from the Hebrew Scriptures, my personal speculation is I think, yes, they are. And I think, yes, they are probably from Persia. Even if they have that, the likelihood that they had any clue what this King of the Jews Messiah prophecy was about is very slim. Why would I say that? Because most of the Jews didn't get it yet either. So it seems unlikely that Gentiles who are pursuing this would get it. They know that a great one is coming. They know that a great one, we know the Prince of Peace, God in flesh. We're on the back side of the story. We get to see all that. But they know he's coming. He's being born. They don't seem to know that he's being born in Bethlehem. Follow the story here. When King, uh, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So they come to Jerusalem, but they don't appear to have come to Herod. They appear to have come to the city and asked around. King of the Jews, Jerusalem would be the place. This is David's city. The Messiah that was expected would be, would be David's, uh, David's seed. 
So when the, the line of David comes through Jerusalem, this is the place of rulers, of course they're going to go to Jerusalem to try and find out. And they're asking around. Herod gets word of it. They don't go to Herod. Herod gets word of it, and he's bothered by it. Everybody's stirred up because these foreigners are here asking about the king of the Jews being born. What do you think Herod's going to do? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he's getting all the smart guys together. Everybody who knows the law, who studied the prophecies, I'm going to get them together. He asked them where the Messiah was to be, built, to be born. So it's not these magi, but it's the Hebrew, the Jewish wise men, prof, uh, uh, rabbis, the teachers, the professors. That's the word I was trying to come up with. As, they are, as he is asking them, they are saying, the scriptures say, and then they quote Micah 5.2 here, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A couple of things about Bethlehem. This is a shepherding town. This is where the, the sheep that were used in temple worship were raised. It was a tiny little town. makes Three Oaks look like a bustling metropolis. And the prophecy calls for this sheep town to bring forth not just sheep for the temple, but the shepherd of God's people. We find out later and in other prophecies that they also are bringing forth the perfect sacrificial lamb. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. So he's got this information now. He calls the Magi back. And he finds out from them the exact time the star had appeared. They said, well, we saw it this, at this time, you know, it, it arose and we've been following it since. We don't know how long that was. Herod doesn't quite know everything about it, but we find out that he is going to try to eradicate this threat to his throne. Now, whether he understands it to be the Messiah, I think he does. Or if he just sees it as another threat, he's a pretty vicious guy. He killed anybody who got in his way. In any case, he sends in soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every male child under two years old. So how long has it been since the baby was born? Who knows? Uh, scholars will estimate anywhere from six months to two years. But we can recognize that it's somewhere under two years because he's killing everybody under two years. But they're not in the manger anymore. They've moved to a house. They've settled in. Let's keep reading. Herod called the Magi secretly, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. He's going to have these Magi do his dirty work for him. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I, may too, that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way because he's just given them the information they needed to go to Bethlehem to find this baby. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Why were they overjoyed? They'd been following the star. Now they're seeing this. I, I don't follow the stars enough to know how they went about this. But when they perceive that the star stops and directs them to the place that the child is, this is their joy. It's not like they just, oh, there's the star. They've been following the star. 
But they see it stop. They see that this is the place where the child is, and they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the not stable, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Not the infant, not the baby, the child. Now that's perhaps straining gnats, but the, the, the reality that we're looking at here is it's not the picture that we get in cartoons on television, right? This is something different. The baby's been born. Joseph and Mary are living their normal lives with a baby, as normal as things get with a baby, right? How many of you know what it's like to have a baby? It's not very normal, right? Yeah. So as they're dealing with their normal, something weird happens. And these foreign, let's call them kings for the sake of the conversation, these foreign kings, these magi, show up. They come to the house. They see the child, verse 11, with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Now I take it from reading this, that this is the first time since that first night that someone has come and bowed down and worshipped this child. We recognize, we'll see in just a moment in Luke 2, that the angels announce him and the shepherds come and they're overjoyed as well. And there may have been some worship involved there, right? But the rest of the time, it, it appears to be just raising a kid that you happen to know is the Son of God in flesh. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Without spending too much time on that, these gifts are precious, they are valuable, and they appear to be representative. People have come up with a lot of meanings, and we can recognize what these gifts tend to be used for and assign symbolism to them. I don't know that that's what the Scripture means, but it sure seems to work well. The gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts of royalty and of death and sacrifice. Verse 12, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, what happens next is interesting. In verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to them in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Let us not ever be confused when we look at the scriptures. The reality is that God speaking audibly, speaking into a person's life in the Bible, not talking about today, in the Bible, is rare and unusual. It doesn't happen all the time, which is why so often when an angel shows up, they say what? Don't be afraid. Fear not, because this is weird. It's not normal. When God speaks to Moses, it only a few times is recorded for us that while God speaks to Moses as a friend talks to a friend, there's a face-to-faceness with him. Not often does he show up and set the mountain on fire. Not often does God intervene in these visible manifestations or these audible manifestations. So when when God speaks to Joseph in all likelihood, speculating because we're not told, but because we're not told, it's a reasonable speculation, in all likelihood, this is the first time that Joseph has had such an experience since the angel told him that the the baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Kind of a big deal. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up, take the child, escape to Egypt, and his mother, don't leave her behind, escape to Egypt, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. When he stayed there until the death, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. God uses this dire circumstance that had to have shaken him up because everything was going along normally until these magi show up. And then all of a sudden an angel shows up because the king's going to show up and try to kill my baby. And God used all of that to fulfill prophecy. Matthew is going out of his way here to record these things to show us fulfilled prophecy that the child would be called out of Egypt. Continuing uh, in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, <laughs> he's been outwitted by the Magi. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. What a horrifying story. But notice what happens next. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. God using adversity to fulfill prophecy. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. <clears throat> but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Ah, you might recognize that name. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. All of this to point out that God continues to do what he promised to do, fulfilling prophecies through the difficult things that they're experiencing interrupting what seemed like a pretty good routine, what they're used to, what they're comfortable with. The real value of Christmas is in recognizing Jesus Christ as the center of everything. If you are like me, Christmas kind of interrupted your routine. Right? This has been a crazy week. Say amen if it's been a crazy week for you. Okay? This, you know, I told Aaron, uh, I almost forgot <laughs> that we had a Sunday service coming up because we had Christmas Eve service and I'm so focused on those things that it's like on, on Thursday, I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, shoot, I have to finish doing this stuff. We still have a job to do. And then we've got Christmas Day and then we had our family celebration with our, uh, with our progressive dinner yesterday. So I went from remembering on Thursday to here we are on Sunday. Surprising stuff. Christmas and holidays, vacations can really wreck your routine. 
Maybe you've experienced the idea of going on vacation, getting away, only to come back and find that you've got to scramble to try and get everything caught up that you missed while you're on vacation. And even to get ready for the vacation, you've got to scramble to get things ready before you go. It's amazing how much we get done in the last three or four hours before we leave for vacation and how much work there is to do when we come back. Christmas interrupts our normal, our routine. And if we let it just do that and just go back to it, then we miss out on this most valuable thing of recognizing Jesus Christ as the center of everything. Turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. We've been here before during this season. We want to see some things. The story you're familiar with, Luke 2, Linus read it to Charlie Brown. In those days, Caesar Augustus, Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius, you could just call him Q, was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So God uses these historic geopolitical events <clears throat> to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. If Quirinius isn't thinking the thoughts he's thinking in Rome regarding the empire for purposes in his mind that have nothing to do with God, he doesn't even know who this God is. But if he weren't doing what he was doing, Joseph and Mary never would have left to go to Bethlehem. God uses all of those things that none of them are thinking about to bring about his greater will. So it is in our lives as well. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So in case you missed it, they go back to Nazareth after the Magi, after Egypt, but Joseph appears to be from Nazareth. That's where he's from to begin with. And because of the census, they leave and they go to Bethlehem, the ancestral city. Went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. We know that from all of the other prophecies. So we're, Luke is catching us up again. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So the innkeeper that's in all the kids' pageants, there's no mention here. The donkey that Mary's always riding, there's no mention here. Did she ride on a donkey? Maybe. That seems logical, but we don't know. So let's not read too much in from our tradition and history that is beyond what we know from the Scriptures. What we do know is they get to Bethlehem. The baby is born that was conceived of the Holy Spirit, which is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And he's born and he's placed in this animal feeder because they don't have a guest room. And there were shepherds, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. How many of you recognize that's what shepherds do, Right? We don't have to go into a big study of shepherds to know shepherds, you know, shepherd. They keep watch over their flocks. So that's what they're doing. They're keeping watch over their flocks at night. We don't know when the baby is born, but we do know when the angels show up. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, in verse 9, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, understandably, terrified. I like the King James. They were sore afraid. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord, the serpent crusher, the one you've been waiting for, the one that God is sending to save his people, to rescue you in a way you never even imagined. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Finding a baby wrapped in these swaddling clothes, not unusual. Finding them in a cow feeder, a little weird, right? This is the sign. You're going to go here, you're going to find, when you find the baby in the manger, not just a baby, but a baby in a manger, you got the right kid. That sounded disrespectful. I didn't mean it to sound disrespectful. I apologize. Verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying... I have some pastor friends who will really hammer the point that they are saying, not singing. Let's not get hung up on these angels singing. He doesn't say they sing. Well, the word can be used either way, just like in our English language. There are lots of things that can be used lots of ways. So while it doesn't state that they are singing, I'm not going to stop singing the carols about them singing. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared with the angel. Starts with one. Now the heavens are filled with heavenly host, praising God. And saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. How many of you know the shepherds got nothing else done that night? All the, all the routine, all the normal out the window. You're not sleeping now. Verse 15, when the angels left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Now they're, they're in the fields outside of Bethlehem. We're going to go into town, tiny little town. We're going to go in there, see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger when they had seen him. When they had seen him. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. When you see Jesus, everything changes. What the shepherds experience here, when they see this baby, what the angels had said to them no longer was something that they were hoping for, no longer something they were looking forward to. It was something that had now become real in their lives because they personally encountered Jesus. After Jesus was crucified, his disciples scattered. They were scared to death. We find them later gathered in a room. Perhaps it was the same room that they took the the Passover celebration, what we would recognize as the remembrance celebration or communion, that last time with Jesus before he died. Maybe it was the same room. But they're gathered there behind locked doors, cowering with fear that the authorities will find out and they'll come and take them away just like they took Jesus away. Peter had denied Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal. And just like that, when the resurrected Jesus shows up, everything changes. And just like these shepherds, those disciples, having now seen the Lord, having seen Him alive after watching Him die, knowing He was buried, having experienced personally the risen Christ, Nothing could shut them up again. 
No more denying. No more hiding in a corner. We're going to tell everybody. We're going to be witnesses to the entire world about Jesus. When Saul, we know him as the Apostle Paul, when Saul, the persecutor of the church, encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, he changed dramatically and immediately from one opposed to the church who persecuted Christ to the one who would not do anything without thinking of how to tell others about Christ. All he wanted in life was to know Christ and help others to know Christ. Everything changed. Why? Because he had seen Jesus. When we get to know him personally, when we encounter Christ, not just read about him in a book, but meet him, everything changes. For the sake of time, I've got to press on here. Let's work through what you've got here in your program so you can see it. First, let's talk about the shepherds. The shepherds lost their normal for a glory beyond their expectations. They, they lost it. It was taken from them. They're doing their normal thing, and God interrupted I'm going along, everything is normal, everything is comfortable, and bam, routine shattered. And it's better. The glory that they find in Christ is beyond their expectations. Now, in all likelihood, all of them were looking forward to a Messiah. They never imagined this. They never imagined angels would show up in the middle of the field and say, hey, baby, Bethlehem, go. They had to be blown away. It was beyond their expectations. And they didn't choose this. It was, if you will, forced upon them. In the middle of their everyday routine, God interrupted. In much the same way, God interrupts us regularly. Whether it's with a sudden bad diagnosis. Could be COVID, could be cancer, could be whatever. Whether it's with these forced isolations because of a pandemic or everything being turned on its ear because of a divisive election, or friends turning against you because you don't share their beliefs in a particular area. God interrupts our routine. And if we are willing, if we're willing to do what He says, to go and find Him in the middle of this difficulty, Everything can change when we find a glory that's beyond our expectations. Now, the shepherds didn't have a choice about this. An angel shows up and starts talking, it kind of wrecks your routine. Comfortable goes out the window. The Magi were different, though. The Magi left their normal for a glory beyond their understanding. Now, they were seeking something. They were seeking king. To seek for a king was their intent, as the song goes. They wanted something. They were, in some way, truth seekers. Whether they were actually God-fearing or they saw these prophecies like any other religious prophecies and they wanted to get in on this great thing, we don't know. But we know they were seeking, and so they left their regular routine. Whatever it was that they did back home, they pulled up their tent, tent stakes, if you will, and they, as my old Baptist pastor from Mississippi used to say, they got on their Z-20 donkey and they headed out. And they went to pursue this 
thing that they were hoping for. This prophecy that they were looking forward to. And they followed the star. And normal went out the window for them. But it was by choice. Now when they got there, what they discovered was probably not what they thought they were going to discover. You have to imagine that these guys, being of a certain wisdom and understanding, seeing these prophecies, if they're pursuing this newborn king, why would they go to Jerusalem? Because that's where kings are born. You go to Jerusalem, to the palace, to the city of David, to find this newborn king. They ask around. Herod calls them in. You mean the sheep town? That's where I'm supposed to be. But it, it smells like sheep. Kings aren't born with sheep. Gets to Bethlehem. You mean the king is in a feeder? With this poor couple, so poor that when they present Jesus at the temple, they offer doves instead of the regular sacrifice? This is unusual. It's not what they expected. They could not have understood, they could not have understood that this was not some earthly king. But this is the one who would fulfill Isaiah 53 and take our stripes on his back so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that we can have life through his death and be reconciled to God. No, these, these magi, they voluntarily left their normal, and when they did, they found a glory beyond their understanding. They knew what they were seeking, but they could not have understood what they would find. Now, for us, we have, to dis we have to choose as disciples of Christ, as Christ followers, to reject normal. The disciple rejects our normal for a glory beyond our imagination. The disciple rejects our normal for a glory beyond explanation. If you're still in Luke, turn just past Luke to the book of John. We won't be here long, but I want you to read it, and then we're going to jump again. John chapter 1. Some of you know exactly where we're going here. The very beginning of John chapter 1. I don't know that I can get through a Christmas season without reading this passage. Because while it might not be the nativity that we see in Matthew and Luke, it is the advent. It is the coming. The incarnation, God putting on skin. John writes, In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word. He is the creative force. When God spoke the worlds into existence, the Word He spoke was Jesus. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him, in Christ, in this baby born in a manger, before He was even in Mary's womb, the Son of God had life in Himself. In Him was life. And that life 
was the light of all mankind. The light, this light of life, this light of Christ, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We read that in Luke chapter 1. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn to the right some more to the book of Colossians. We're going to go past Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters. And there's a group of letters right after that that are kind of small. You see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. We're going to get to Colossians. In Colossians, Paul builds on what John just said about the Word becoming flesh and the the supreme place of Jesus, the center of everything. Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created. Same thing John just said. Things in heaven heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. Now, that implies not merely that he came chronologically before, but that he is ahead of. He is before all things. He is supreme over all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's the center of everything. And he is the head of the body, the church. For he is the beginning of and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He, Christ, might have the supremacy. Man, He's more than a baby in a manger. He's everything. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once, verse 21, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish, free from accusation, 
because of Jesus, you can be fully accepted, clean, made new, reborn, completely without blemish, free from accusation. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And Paul puts his own personal seal on it, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. How did you receive Him? By grace, through faith. Therefore, continue to live your lives by grace, through faith. Jump to verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. That's the normal way of thinking. That's the worldly way of thinking. But they're destined to perish. Such regulations, verse 23, indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in re restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. You're not like the world when you're in Christ. You're not bound by rules that are just low. That, that's a low standard. And you can't use that to be like God. There's no life in these worldly religious rules. But if you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. When I sent that to Aaron as the, as the memory verse, she said, I, I like that one. It's very straight to the point. Memorize that verse. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He goes on to talk about what that looks like. I'll just read the first part. Put to death, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he lists some sinful behaviors that are based on our human nature that's hostile to God. The disciple re rejects our normal for a glory beyond our imagination. When Christ is the center of everything, when we realize what these magi got a taste of, what these shepherds got a taste of, and we come to the place of those apostles and disciples who encountered the risen Christ, where we know deep in our knower that He is real, more real than our momentary experience. We can't go back. Once you know, you can't go back. 
because you've tasted of life. When Jesus asked the disciples if they were going to desert him like everybody else did, Peter's like, Lord, where are we going to go? We've tried the rest, and you're the best. Only you have the words of life. There is no going back once you discover the reality. What is best and what is comfortable are seldom the same thing. What is best and what is comfortable are seldom the same thing. God is not primarily interested in your happiness and comfort. He is primarily interested in your trusting faith in Christ that conforms you to His likeness because you have received the Son. And in receiving the Son, you are made God's child. In receiving the Son and becoming God's child, your entire identity changes. So as a child of God, you no longer have the right, yes I said you no longer have the right, to see yourself primarily as male or female or Jew or Gentile or black or white, as American or any other small identity. Your sexuality does not define you. Your particular proclivity towards sin does not define you. Christ defines you and Christ alone. Therefore, all of the things of this world are small and pale and empty and powerless. Why would you chase them? Why would you dedicate yourself to something as silly as binge-watching television? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not in any way going to tell you that, that it is sinful and bad for you to enjoy the things of this world. I personally enjoy watching television. If you listen to our podcast, you'll hear that I've been binge-watching, if you will, some DC superhero shows, because they're awesome. But they can never be truly awesome, because true awe is inspired by that which is transcendent. The things of this world are given to us to enjoy for God's glory. But the things of this earth are passing away. If we're in Christ, we died to this world. We don't, we don't think like the world. We don't live like the world. If you're thinking and living like the world, then you are missing out on everything that God is giving you, that He has promised you. You're missing out on who you are. It's like being the heir to the throne and just, you know, that's cool, but I want to hang out with my buddies and live in the gutter. And I'm giving up the throne so I can live in the gutter. Why would you do that? It doesn't even make sense. What is best is often, what is best and what is comfortable are seldom the same thing. What is normal in this world of sin is contrary to who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ drives us. Therefore, the disciple rejects our normal for a glory beyond our imagination. Notice this. Wisdom prioritizes lasting value over current trends. Some of you might still have bell-bottoms in your, in your closet from back in the 70s. Some of you are like, what are bell-bottoms? What are the 70s? <sighs> Young people. 
I remember young ones. So there are things that are cool in the moment that you look back on and say, really? <laughs> I wore that. I wore those parachute pants. I know my brother remembers parachute pants, right? So now every TV show you see will make fun of them. They were passing. They were cool in the moment. It was what the trend of the time. And what we see in our cultural norms, what is accepted in our society, is nothing more than bell-bottoms and parachute pants. We so often chase over what is popular thinking, chase after what is popular thinking, and we pass over what is priceless. One of my favorite quotes in Christian literature comes from James Eliot. Some of you know exactly what I'm going to say. James Elliott was a, he was only 25, I think. He was a young, young missionary from Wheaton College who gave up everything to go to South America and take the gospel to unreached people groups, including the Alka Indians, who were vicious and violent and cannibalistic. And to make a long story short, it cost him his life. But a generation later, some of those same folks who were involved in his murder became preachers of the gospel. Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wisdom prioritizes lasting value over current trends. Don't get sucked into the thinking of this world and pass up what God is telling you. There is a pearl of great price in the scriptures. We must cling to what is valuable, not what is normal. Lastly, understand that real life in Christ is God-focused, Christ-centered, and gospel-saturated. God-focused, Christ-centered, and gospel-saturated. As we just read, Paul wrote to the Colossian church, because of who you are in Christ, because you died with Him and you were raised with Him, man, set your minds on heaven. Set your minds on the things of God, not the things of this earth. It's really hard to soar with the eagles when you're grubbing with the chickens and turkeys down here. So stop thinking like a turkey and start soaring like an eagle. Get your mind on heavenly things. That's where you belong. God-focused. Christ-centered. He's everything. This is the benefit of moments like Christmas. It serves the same purpose in a big holiday way that we easily confuse with a lot of commercialism. That... The communion celebration, the remembrance celebration serves to remind us, to refocus us, to recalibrate our thinking so that our thoughts are now realigned with the reality of God. Use this moment to remind yourself that Jesus is supreme over everything. He is central. He is your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll also appear with Him in glory. Real life in Christ is God-focused, Christ-centered, 
and gospel-saturated, those who have encountered Christ, have a passion for the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but I might be stepping on your toes when I say, if you don't have a passion for helping lost people know Jesus, you may very well not know Jesus at all. If your comfort, if your routine is more important to your heart than people who are dying and going to hell finding the only hope there is, you might not have ever really encountered Him. If we have received His grace, if we have been forgiven and made alive in Christ, how can we let anything in this passing world become more important than our mission to make disciples of those who are dying and going to hell. Listen, you don't need to beat people over the head with your Bible. That's not what it's for. It's for reading, not beating. You don't need to go and beat somebody up and say, man, you're, just, you're going to hell because you're not living right. Brother, we're all going to hell until we come to Christ. Every single one of us. You don't get in because you're better than somebody else. You get in because he died for you. And when your eyes have been opened to that, and you're able to say, you know what? I got nothing to offer. All these things that I, I, I thought I was good. I, I thought I was a pretty good person. Oh, I paid my taxes. I, I stood still and held my hand over my heart for the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, I, I, I'm sure I was a good person. I was, you know, respectful to the opposite sex and... and you know, I didn't run up a bunch of debts, and I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't wreck my car, you know, by drinking too much and all that kind of stuff. I must be a good person. Wait a minute. God's standard is bigger, and I have nothing to offer. When I come to that place and I realize it, and I hang all my hope on Jesus, because God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever, whatever your background is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how wretched and horrible you were. We're all wretched and horrible. It doesn't matter how good you think you were, how educated you are. We're all wretched and horrible compared to God's standard. And he loved us enough that anybody, 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 who will trust in Jesus alone can have eternal life in Him in a relationship that can never be undone. You can't unearn it because you couldn't earn it in the first place. God's grace wrapped in a baby given for us. Jerked everybody there out of their normal. My prayer for you today is that Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit taking hold of your heart and mind, will rip us out of our normal so that we can never go back there again. I'm not saying don't go to work tomorrow. I'm saying go to work with a new mission that everybody who encounters you will see Jesus Christ. He's the center of everything. If you get that, then you've grasped the real value of Christmas. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent the light of the world to us. We thank you, Father, that you have valued our holiness over our happiness. That you have called us beyond normal to something glorious. I pray now, Lord, that what has happened here in our gathering today for those who are physically with us and for those who are, are virtually gathering, I pray that what has happened here today would bring glory and honor to your name. But Father, I pray that it would be so much more than just a moment. That you would get into us. That you would infect us with an incurable passion for Jesus. Father, give us faith that has feet. Protect our minds from slipping back into routine. Protect us from cherishing the comfortable. Help us to set our minds not on earthly things, but on things above. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen.